So today, we are going to be looking at our second core value as a church. The first core value was Jesus values the lost. Lost people matter to God. He wants them found. And over the last three weeks, myself and Jason, our other pastoral elder here, have shared about lostness and how some people are just lost, lost, without God, without hope. And God is looking for them like a good shepherd. Jesus wants those people found. Uh, the only reason that God doesn't work faster, it says in the scriptures, is because he wants as many people to be found as possible. So the reason God doesn't close history is because he's waiting for more people to come in. Um, there's also a lostness where, as Christians, we become lost from time to time. We become untended, uh, and, and we need a shepherd for our soul desperately. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. I leave them in and out of pasture. I, I leave them beside still water. You know, we all need a shepherd as well. And for many of us, we felt like we're on our own, but Jesus is saying, I'm your good shepherd. I didn't only find you. I'm here to guide you and walk with you and take care of you. But today is our second core value. Jesus values prayer. Prayer is the primary work of God's people. Prayer is the primary work of God's people. Think about that sentence. That's a really powerful statement, you know, with much force. It's the primary work of God's people. That means that far more important than me preparing a message and giving it to you is prayer. Far more important than anything we might do is prayer. It's our primary work. That's what we believe. And this morning I'm excited to tell you about a couple of things I've learned about prayer over the last few years especially, and also to show you what Jesus did and taught in regard to prayer. I have found from all the people I've talked to in my office and, and outside of this church and conferences and places I've spoken at, that Christians usually feel the most self-condemnation about their lack of a prayer life. Is that true? Christians often feel the most self-condemnation about their lack of a prayer life. And I, I chose those words carefully, self-condemnation. Because we can claim the promise of Romans 8.1, where it says that uh, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, any condemnation we put on ourselves is our self-condemnation. God doesn't want us to feel condemned. God doesn't want us to feel behind, like we've, we've just gone too far without praying and now it's a lost cause. You know, God wants us to engage with him. Um, my, my very good friend has told me about um, his children at college. And, you know, a parent that loves their child who goes off to college, the, the kid doesn't call the first week. Oh, that's, that's heartbreaking. That's sad. Second week, oh, it's crushing. Third week, oh, this is killing me. A month into it, they call. You're happy to hear from them. And God is a good father. He's happy to hear from us no matter how long it's been. And we, the only condemnation that we feel is often our self-condemnation. You know, God, uh, God wants us to come to him in prayer. So you, the good news is, part of it, you've arrived at church already without any condemnation on you for anything, if you are in Christ. For what you have done or not done, you are not condemned. Jesus is actually inviting you instead. Doesn't that sound better? So we've all heard the phrase, you are what you eat, right? Heard that phrase? And without even thinking about it, we've kind of accepted another phrase in the church and elsewhere in our particular culture, you are what you know or you are what you believe. 
The idea is that if you know the right things about God and Jesus and the Bible, then you are a Christian. You know, you are what you know. There's a different way of looking at uh, what, what makes us who we are and what we value uh, that I got from a book. Author Jamie Smith says, the real truth about us is that we are what we love. You know, fundamentally, we are people that love things and we become like the thing that we love. So regardless of what you believe about God, Jesus, the Bible, if you don't love God and don't love Jesus, don't love the Holy Spirit, don't love God, then you're not going to really get very far. It all, it's all about love, and we, we become the thing that we love the most. We see this all the time in the Old Testament where, where the, the, the people of Israel would go follow a false god, and they would become a whole different person from loving something other than God. And, you know, a lot of us are suffering from a lifetime of loving other things more than God, while at the same time knowing all the right things about God, right? And so uh, you are what you love. So the author asks, what if instead of starting from the assumption that human beings are first of all thinking beings, we started from the conviction that human beings are first and foremost people who were created to love things, loving beings, when I first became a believer, it was a very exciting time in my life. And I can tell you what drove me to study the Bible and to, to read about God and pray was not a desire for new information fundamentally. It was a love for God and what he had done for me. And that's what really drove me. And I read a lot out of love, and I, and I began to become a little bit like what I loved through, through God and his grace. You know, when I first began playing mandolin, it's a really difficult instrument very intricate, very small frets compared to a guitar, double strings. It takes a lot, of, uh, a lot of hard work to get good at the mandolin. But it wasn't music theory that drove me. It was not a desire to learn new information about the mandolin or even to learn lots of songs. My love of mandolin actually came from my, my love of Chris Thiele, who plays the, viol the mandolin like no other, who I mentioned in sermons a lot. His technique, the beautiful way that he plays the instrument... I wanted, in a sense, to be Chris Thiele someday, which I never will be. Luckily, same, same is true of reading the Bible, by the way. Never be like, <laughs> never going to be as great as Jesus. But boy, it was, it's, it was love for that band's particular technique. And other people I found along the way, like Mike Marshall, uh, who are just masters of the craft, that drove me to, go, to work through calluses, through pain, through having fat fingers on a tiny fretted instrument. And people say, how, how do you play the mandolin? It's so tiny. I'm like, it's technique. It's technique, but it was for the love of this particular musician that drove me. Like, look what's possible. You know, you, you kind of become what you love over time. Just knowing about something is not enough. Jamie Smith says that Christian discipleship frequently starts off on the wrong foot as we preach and educate and train and do youth work and even parent according to the wrong model. We assume that people change through learning different things, whereas actually... We grow through loving different things. It's interesting. And those loves are not formed mainly through new information, but through new habits in our lives. We develop our loves, the things that we love, through the habits that we develop. And this can go from God to sin. Think about the sin habits that you have. Uh, you develop a love for those things. It's unspoken. You feel bad about them. But it becomes a ha it's, it's habitually practiced sin points to that thing that you love right? The same is true of our devotion to God. Habitually practiced uh, practices to draw near to God 
kind of form us inside. You are what, you're lo- what you love. It is our habits and our behaviors throughout the week that tell us what we love most. That's a tough sentence. But I believe it's true. Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know, the people with the most knowledge in the New Testament were not the disciples and the new converts to Christianity. If you are what you love, and love is a virtue, then love is also a behavior, a practice, what you do with your life, how you spend your time. So developing a new love is like driving a car or playing the mandolin or learning to be a better golf player for the golfers in the room. It requires practice. It requires, over time, developing habits which eventually make you like the thing that you love. That's why, for love of Chris Thiele's mandolin technique, I've been able to play some of the ways that he plays. For love of God, I think I've begun to, to just a little bit love like Jesus loves. These are the things that shape us, what we do. So let's take a moment. You know, reflect on the things you've done over this past week. What you did and, and what you spent the most time on. Those are the things that point to what you love These are interesting thoughts, I think. So I'm not going to let anyone raise their hands and tell me what those things are, but it truly says a lot about us. So as we're talking about this topic of prayer, one of the things I've learned is that the the, the repetitive behavior of praying actually shapes your love for God. You know, it's a really cool thing. And that gives you a little bit more control over your loveless heart. (laughs) You find that your love for others is waning. You're less likely to forgive your enemies or make peace. You find that your love for God is waning. The good news is that a new habit of prayer can actually stir up and grow a love for God in your heart. It's an amazing thing. Second thing I've learned about prayer, especially over the last few years, is that the act or the habit of praying is in itself an act of faith. It's an act of faith. Especially starkly contrasted to our culture where if you're not doing something, then you are nothing. We're defined by our careers, by what we do, by our output. What's the first thing you get asked at a party by an uncomfortable stranger who's trying to make conversation? What do you do? What do you do? These are very important uh, things about us. But against the grain of conventional wisdom, which would accuse us of wasting our time while sitting by ourselves or with a group of people, to pray, the act of prayer in itself, regardless of what you pray about or how eloquent you may pray, is saying something about what you really believe. When you spend time in prayer, you are in faith saying, this time is time well spent. In fact, this time that I'm spending in prayer is more important than anything I might do. That's a big thought. Prayer is the primary work of God. Prayer is the primary work of God's people. So I've gotten into the habit as we've met for prayer on Wednesdays um, at the church with our little group of people um, of just saying back to God, saying, God, we're here because we believe that prayer is our primary work. So Lord, we lift up these prayers knowing that this is your work first and foremost, right? 
It's not wasted time. So if you love God, you believe that prayer is the primary work of the people of God, then you will build a habit of prayer, which will in turn inform what you love in this beautiful uh, cycle. It's an act of faith, a confidence in what you hope for, a certainty of what you don't see. That's what we do when we pray, as Hebrews 11.1 1 says. We're confident in what we hope for and sure of what we do not see in prayer. So really, as, as we're going to get into the Scripture today, the good news this morning is you can start to love God more this week by beginning to develop a regular habit of prayer. That, that will actually shape who you are and what you love. And the habit that you develop will make you into a type of person that knows and loves and trusts in God. Spending time in prayer will also increase your capacity to believe God in general. Your faith will absolutely and definitely increase as you make a habit of prayer over time. I believe that. I love the journey of, of Abraham. You know, here's a nomadic shepherding guy. And God comes to him and says, go to the land I will show you. Not a lot of details. For most of you, that would really bother you a lot. Go up, get up and go to the land I will show you. One of, the, one of the other things God said to Abraham was, look up at the sky in Genesis 15 and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. You remember that Abraham and his wife were very old and infertile. But the Lord said that so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and credited it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. You know, what, what really showed whether Abraham believed the Lord or not? It was that he moved forward as if what God told him was true and walked, walked it out. Go to the land I will show you. Start walking. Right? The great saints of the Bible, like Moses and, you know, obviously um, saints and sinners, you know, like us, not idealized spiritual people, the way that they uh, showed what they loved was by following God, making a habit of following him, believing him, and God credited it to them as righteousness. So you are what you love. You're formed by the habits you create, which then make you love the thing that you are forming the habit over. And prayer is an expression of faith. We're saying, this is not wasted time. This is my primary work when we pray. Today's passage, one of them is in uh, Luke 11, 1 to 13. At the time that we are, are coming into this passage, Jesus' disciples had been walking with him literally for two years at least. And though Jesus had taught them many things in passing, this is the first time that we see the disciples actually asking Jesus to teach them about a specific subject. So this is the, Jesus has taught them a lot of things. It's the first time they've made a special request for him to teach them something very specific. And they chose the topic of prayer, which is interesting after two years of following Jesus because Jesus had done a lot of very interesting things up to this point, the most mundane of which would seem to be prayer. He had performed miracles such as healing people, delivering people from demonic oppression. He had taught to crowds of thousands and captivated audiences. He had been able to confound and confuse the most intelligent religious people out there with his teaching. There's all kinds of 
really cool things that Jesus had shown his disciples he could do. But the thing that they had the most questions about was prayer. That's what they asked him to teach them about, teach them about prayer. It's kind of a comforting in a way to know that this feeling of we don't know what we're doing when it comes to prayer is not a new problem. You know, this was the disciples' problem. We don't know what we're doing, Lord. Teach us how to pray. They knew that prayer was something that Jesus did. They were aware of this because he was always going off to do it. And if you really look at the scriptures side to side, they talk about Jesus leaving to go pray. There's a lot of them. It's, it's actually very shocking. He was mostly by himself, sometimes with other people. The people that he prayed with in, in small group often fell asleep while he was trying to teach them how to pray, which some of you might be able to identify with as well. So don't feel bad if you fall asleep during small group or during worship. You know, you just make the speaker feel really bad. That's all. Um, but he, here we have people that are not unlike us, except for they'd walk with Jesus for two years. They still didn't know uh, what they were doing with prayer. So in the Gospel of Mark alone, which is the short, action-packed Gospel, 16 chapters, Jesus retreats specifically uh, for prayer nine times. He goes to a solitary place nine times in Mark, has 16 chapters. And it's also implied a whole bunch more times in Mark where it doesn't explicitly say he went to pray, but it says, like, as he was walking in the field, as he was doing this, he was praying. That's what he was doing. He was all about it. But it's very mysterious to the disciples. Listen to these passages from Mark 1.35. It says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. The disciples are like, where did he go? The Keurig is like warm. You know, he's gone. He's had his coffee. We were sleeping. Where did he go? What's he doing? Mark 1.45, it says, Despite Jesus' plea that his miracles be kept a secret, the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Mark 2.13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake to pray. Mark 3.13, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him. Matthew 14, 13, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Mark 6, 46, after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was still there all alone. Mark 8, 27, once when Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Mark 14, 26, when Jesus and the disciples had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This was Jesus' usual place to pray when he was in Jerusalem. In Mark 14, 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And finally, leading into our passage today, one day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Very mysterious to them. They've been watching him. Finally, they asked the question. Teach us to pray. What did Jesus know about prayer that we don't know? Let's try to find out today. Teach us to pray, Lord, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Because a friend of mine is on a journey. He's come to me, and I don't have anything to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children are with me and in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend. Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Reading on in Luke 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable, a story to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with all of her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will God not bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That was a parable Jesus told um, his disciples to encourage them, it says, to pray and not give up. To not give up. Make a habit of this thing. So what do we learn about prayer? from these two passages. For me, the number one thing from Luke 11, 1 to 3, prayer is actually pretty simple. And I know that there are churches where the pastor will take the Lord's Prayer, as it's called, and do a Sunday on the word Our Father. For the next two hours, we're going to talk about what that means. Hallowed be your name. For the next two Sundays, we're going to talk about that. And that's good. I like that. But... What really is accentuated to me in this prayer is it's very simple. Very, very simple. The disciples are looking for, I think, something much more um, impressive, but Jesus gives them this very simple teaching. He says, Father, you're the Father. Holy is your name. Let your kingdom come. Give us what we need to live today. Forgive us as our sins, of our sins, as we have forgiven those who sinned against us. That's kind of a little self-teaching there. And lead us not into temptation. A simple, simple prayer. And Jesus says uh, in other places in the Bible, when you pray in the Beatitudes, do not go babbling like the pagans do, people that don't know God. They think they will be heard because of their many words. Instead, go to your Father, simply, consistently. Don't give up. Simple prayer. Anyone can do it. 
The second thing that I learned about prayer is not just that it's pretty simple, but apparently, according to Jesus' own thinking in Luke 11 and Luke 16, we do not really think good enough thoughts about God when we pray. Our thoughts about God are not very positive when we come to him in prayer. And we ought to think better thoughts about God if we are to develop a habit of prayer and thus a love for God. So Jesus decided to teach on prayer using these extremely negative stories about people that are not so great as a way of saying how much more your Father in heaven will receive those who pray to him. Think about this. The first story is a friend goes to a friend in desperate need of something to feed his guests. Now you have to understand in Middle Eastern culture, as it is today, hospitality is number one. If you don't have food and stuff to give to you people that visit you, it's a huge shame. It's a shame on your house, a shame on your name, a shame on your family. You better have some hospitality. And in, 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 um, in cultures like this, um, even if people are very poor, they will put out the best that they have for their guests. When, I, when we traveled to Bosnia, hospitality culture is huge. We went, we went into a, a population of people living in houses without, without walls and cracks in the wall, clearly impoverished. They brought out special food for us and coffee. And the hospitality was so touching. I mean, it's a huge value. This guy is, is going to his friend saying, look, I'm desperate. I'm, I'm about to be put in this shame situation. You have to help me. And the, the supposed friend says, my kids are sleeping, I'm sleeping, the door is locked, go away. Which is understandable on one level because it's hard to get kids to stay asleep. <clears throat> but on another level, it's not very good friend behavior because he's saying, your honor doesn't mean anything to me. Go away. He says... Don't bother me. The door is locked. The kids are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. But even though the man inside will not give the guy bread because he's a friend, but because of the man's boldness, he will get up, contrary to what he said, and give him what he needs. It's a negative example of a not very good friend teaching about how we ought to be bold. Because when we pray, as we're making a habit of prayer, if we uh, if we come to God with that same kind of boldness, because of how good God is compared to the crummy friend, we can expect much better things. We, we, need, we need to think better thoughts about God and his heart towards us if we're going to uh, develop this good habit of prayer that helps us to love God better. Uh, we have to believe better things about him than we do inside. And I happen to know, because I also have an inner dialogue, that the things that we say to ourselves are really about God as we try to pray are usually not very positive, right? Jesus is saying, God is better than you think. He's better than you think. Second story. An abusive father who gives his kid bad things instead of meeting their legitimate needs. The kids are asking for bread and water. This, this evil father, even though he's evil, um, he, he kind of wants to give them a stone and a scorpion instead of the bread and the water. That's what he wants to do. So he's a terrible father. That's kind of what he wants to do in his heart. But even though he's an evil father, he still gives them the bread and the water because he doesn't want to probably get in trouble for murdering them or something. 
It says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? He asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I got the food wrong, didn't I? <laughs> so much bread, bread and water in the Bible, sorry. If, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's like saying, like, um, even bad parents provide for their kids' basic needs most of the time. How much more your Father in heaven? What do you think about him? What's your thoughts about how God views your prayers to him and asking him for provision? Is it like this evil father that wants to withhold? Or do you have better thoughts about God? The final story in Luke uh, 18 is a crooked judge who refuses to hear the case of a poor widow who's being denied justice. And the reason is probably because there's not much anything in it for him. There's nothing in it for the judge. Um, but she keeps on hounding him for justice day and night. Bring me justice. Judge, I need you to rule on this matter and give me justice. And finally, the judge says, I don't care about this widow. I don't care about what she needs, but I'm very sick of her. And so he helps her out just to get rid of her. So it's the, the wicked judge. And Jesus, you can almost hear Jesus saying, he, well, first of all, he teaches on persistence. He says, this is a lesson in persistence. When you pray, be persistent. Because even a wicked judge would grant justice with a persistent person. How much more your Father in heaven, who loves you and wants to bring about justice, how much more will he answer you as you persist? So Jesus teaches about prayer using three negative examples. Uh, he says, be bold because God is good, and even a bad friend would give you what you needed if you're bold enough. He says, ask for the things that you need, because even a bad father will give his kids what they need if they ask him enough. He says, ask for justice, because even a crooked judge would give what someone needed just to get rid of them. How much more your father in heaven, who loves you? According to Jesus, in my opinion, the most important thing about prayer that he teaches in Luke 11 is keep it simple and just keep on doing it with boldness and persistence. Because on the other end of that prayer line is God, who's not like a bad friend, an evil judge, or an abusive parent. You know? Keep it simple. It's a little Our Father prayer, simple prayer. And keep on doing it. And I say to you, as you do it, you will begin to love God. And you will begin to love others uh, in a different way than you've ever experienced. Because through prayer... The primary work that we have, we are transformed as we do these things day after day. A lot of times our inner dialogue keeps us from that persistent, ongoing prayer. We have so much self-condemnation around prayer. Christians feel so bad about their lack of a prayer life. God is mad at me because this is the first time I've prayed in months. So I'm not very inspired to pray. A lot of people feel that way. Ironically, they won't start praying to God because they feel bad about being such a bad prayer for so long. God is not pleased with me because I've never had a prayer life before, even though I should have developed one by now after 20 years of walking with Jesus. Therefore, he's not going to listen to my prayers. These are the things people hear inside. God cannot possibly be happy with me because I don't read the Bible, but only hear his word in church service or occasionally on the radio. Some people feel pretty bad about that. Therefore, I shouldn't think I should come before him in prayer. He's not going to listen to me. God is still upset with me because of my 
my sin problem. He won't hear my prayers until I have complete victory over this. You know, ironically, prayer would be the thing that would help you the most probably, but, you know, um, that stuff keeps us from God too. God has been a little bit standoffish with me since my marriage failed because I could have done more to save it. So I just haven't prayed to him since. God is mad at me. He won't hear, hear me. He, I'm condemned before him. These are all things that we have in our mind. But Jesus says, your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask it. Jesus says your Father in heaven has compassion on you because he knows how weak you are. He remembers how you were formed. He knows that you are dust, that you are weak, that you can't change anything on your own. Jesus Jesus says, uh, or the author of Hebrews said, he is sympathetic with our weaknesses. He was tempted like we're tempted, but didn't sin. God is calling us to a bold, persistent, simple prayer life that when applied over time will make all the difference. So it's time to throw off all those condemnations and just begin to pray. Know the parable of Jesus, he talks about the talents. And, uh, and the person, these pe- three people were given three different amounts of money. The first person invests, the second person invests, they, get, they yield a, a reward. The third person buries their talent because they believe the master is a hard man and they better not lose that talent. And so Jesus' whole point is, I am not. That's not who I am. So be bold. Come to me. In prayer, I am loving, compassionate, sympathetic to your weakness. So come to God. Prayer is simple. Think about what you're thinking about God when you pray. We need to think better thoughts about who God is and his love towards us. God is not a harsh judge. He's not a fair-weather friend or an abusive father. He's much better, much more loving, much more sympathetic, much more understanding, much less demanding than that. So we must try to think better thoughts about him before to develop this habit of prayer which we so desperately need to have in our lives. So as the worship team comes, you know, next week we're going to continue looking at prayer as some practical matters on how we might pray as individuals, as a church body. But today the, the offer is simply begin to come to me regularly in prayer. You know what? There's all kinds of things you can do to do this. I would set an alert on your phone two times a day. Just pray a simple prayer. Keep track of what you're thinking about God as you pray. And just begin to develop this habit because that habit will develop you into someone who loves God and loves others. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you for giving us the gift of prayer, for saying to all of our self-condemnations, no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for inviting us into this life where we bring before you Um, our simple prayers where we begin to trust you as a holy God who has reached out to us and desires relationship. So I pray for each person here, Lord, that you would stoke the fire in our hearts, that we would come alive in this area of prayer, that we would find simple words to convey the simple heart cries that we have, uh, knowing that you are the good Father. You are the just judge. You are the good friend. May we be boldly and persistently come before you. In Jesus' name.